Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today is the second anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Two weeks ago, on December 19th, the Select Committee established in the House of Representatives to investigate the attack convened publicly for the last time. Here's the committee's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi in his opening remarks to the hearing, at which the committee issued criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump for his role in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. To cast a vote in the United States is an act of faith and hope. When we drop that ballot in the ballot box, we expect the people named on the ballot are going to uphold their end of the deal. The winner swears an oath and upholds it. Those who come up short ultimately accept the results and abide by the rule of law. That faith in our system is the foundation of American democracy. If the faith is broken, so is our democracy. Donald Trump broke that faith. He lost the 2020 election and knew it. But he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. There's no doubt about this. At the hearing, the committee presented its key findings and adopted its final report, which was released publicly a couple of days later. Now, according to the legislation that established the January 6th committee, the members were mandated to examine how technology, including online platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Reddit, may have factored into the motivation, organization, and execution of the insurrection. Almost a year ago, the committee issued subpoenas to a variety of online platforms and websites, demanding records, quote, relating to the spread of misinformation, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, domestic violent extremism, and foreign influence in the 2020 election, unquote. When the subpoenas were issued, Chairman Thompson said, quote, two key questions for the select committee are how the spread of misinformation and violent extremism contributed to the violent attack on our democracy, and what steps, if any, social media companies took to prevent their platforms from being breeding grounds for radicalizing people to violence, unquote. He noted that the subpoenas were issued because the companies had, up until that point, failed to voluntarily provide information useful to the investigation. In order to learn what came of this particular aspect of the committee's sprawling 18-month investigation, in this episode I'm joined by four individuals who helped conduct it, including staffing the depositions of social media executives, message board operators, far-right online influencers, militia members, extremists, and others that gave testimony to the committee. Here are my guests. My name is Megan Conroy. I was an investigator on the January 6th committee. Um, I was housed on the Purple Team, where we were focusing on social media and extremism, but we can get more into that in a bit. Um, And I am now a U.S. Research Fellow with the Digital Forensic Research Lab. I'm Dean Jackson. I'm the Project Manager of the Influence Operations Researchers Guild at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I joined the committee last spring as a consultant 
And I was responsible for the investigation into Facebook, Twitter, and Google's content moderation policies in the run-up to the insurrection. I'm Alex Newhouse. Uh, I am the Deputy Director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism at Middlebury, and I joined the committee last spring uh, as an investigative consultant working on data analysis and extremism. I'm Jacob Glick. I'm currently Policy Counsel at Georgetown's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. Uh, And at the beginning of 2022, I joined the select committee as an investigative counsel uh, on the Purple team. And I was uh, one of the co-leads on the social media investigation and also one of the co-leads on our investigation into uh, domestic extremism. So I'm speaking to you all about 48 hours after the committee has effectively dissolved uh, with the beginning of the new Congress. Um, And only a couple of weeks since the final report of the committee has been published, I want to kind of start just with some basics, try to give the listener a sense of your role in the investigation, what the Purple Team did, uh, and how it fit into this broader scheme of looking at the context in which January 6th occurred. Jacob. Basically, the Purple Team was envisioned as a way to fuse efforts of other teams together to create a broader context for how the insurrection occurred and the context in which it um, was able to ferment. Uh, So we did a lot of work with other teams. For example, the red team was focused on sort of the the rioters the day of and how Proud Boys and Oath Keepers organized to get to D.C. on January 6th. So we co-led a lot of those depositions and asked Proud Boys and Oath Keepers broader questions about why they were motivated to become involved in extremist groups and support President Trump. Um, We also had similar involvement in some of gold team depositions and green team depositions, trying to provide them with more questions about broader context uh, beyond the schemes that define the report and define so much of the important work of the committee. The one thing that Purple Team did take on by itself was the investigation into the role of social media platforms in the run-up to January 6th. And that took two forms. I think uh, Megan and Alex are better situated to talk about some of the data analysis that Purple Team performed to talk about trends and and the impact of President Trump's behavior on internet traffic. Um, And Dean and I, as well as Megan and Alex, also were involved in more traditional investigative work, depositions, document production, and the like, about uh, various platforms ranging from Facebook to 8Kun to talk through how those platforms had a role in the attack. So Megan uh, or Alex, could you speak a little bit to that other piece? What did that look like, the data analysis, the sort of network analysis piece of it? Um, I can jump in uh, to start. I was actually originally hired to do the job that Dean ended up doing. Um, So the Purple team was kind of an ever-evolving enigma within the committee, and we kind of had to adapt um, and conquer uh, as as the committee's needs shifted and as the investigation progressed. So essentially, when I started, we realized there's suddenly kind of a gap in so in the committee's social media data analysis capabilities, and I stepped in to fill it. And then I brought Alex on to help me execute some of the, the projects that the committee wanted done. Those projects ranged from finding social media posts uh, that people weren't sure if they had been archived or disappeared or deleted or anything like that. Definitely were sent on some, some fun hunting expeditions. Um, and then, of course, there was the, the data analysis piece, which involved anything from, like I uh, mentioned earlier, talking about kind of the frequency of posts, understanding the longevity of different narratives online, kind of where these narratives popped up, where they ended up, and looking at their transition into the mainstream. And a lot of these cases from more fringe, fringe sites and and fringe areas. So like Jacob said, we looked at everything from mainstream platforms like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, all the way to kind of alt tech platforms like Gab, and then fringe platforms like Acun and 4chan. 
you know, in his forward to the January 6th report, Chairman Benny Thompson noted that the committee, quote, pulled back the curtain at certain major social media companies to determine if their policies and protocols were up to the challenge when the president spread a message of violence and his supporters began to plan and coordinate their descent on Washington. But let's let's get one thing out of the way up front. It would appear that much of your work product did not make it into the final report. After that statement from Chairman Thompson, there's a, a sort of notable absence of a particular section or chapter or appendix uh, focused on it. And then ultimately, I suppose I'm aware there's this 120-page report on this component of the investigation that Rolling Stone reported on that is not included in the underlying documents released by the committee. Can one of you take that on? What, what do you think is the reason that that material has been essentially uh, left out of these final materials? Dean? I'm happy to, to give a, f- a first general answer to that. And then some of my colleagues who were kind of there at the final stages vetting the report can, I think, elaborate. Um, but I think we all agree that the, the committee really made a decision, and it's their decision to make, to tell a story that mostly focused on the former president. They felt that it was very important to say something to the American public that they could really grip and understand. And in doing so, a lot of material that was sort of considered supplemental, like that, that memo, um, were not included in the report. And I think what's, what's really important is that we, and the reason I think all of us are, are here today talking to you and, and why we're so sort of eager to, to get into this, is that it's important that the conclusion not be that there was no role that social media played or that the companies were exonerated by our investigation or that that somehow the threat of a January 6th style attack or an American demagogue who tramples on our democracy is somehow gone now that Trump is out of office and now that his political star may be declining. We'll see how the presidential election in 24 goes, but certainly he seems to be past the zenith of his, his political power. We, we want to really emphasize that actually we did pull back the curtain of those companies and what we saw was not comforting. And if anything, trends since then make us more concerned, right? Because as the tech companies um, kind of diminish in size and power, which is something, you know, a lot of antitrust advocates have been calling for for a long time. And a great irony is that they have fewer resources to keep their platforms safe. There are also now more platforms, greater variety of platforms where extremists can organize and coordinate and where researchers like Megan and Alex have to look to understand what's happening online. And, and of course, we, we've seen since January 6th, other incidents of political violence and a, a sort of continued division and the continuance of the narratives that led to the January 6th attack about the 2020 election, lack of, of faith and trust in our political institutions. And when you add all of that together, we're, we're still in quite a dangerous place, even though the, the urgency of the danger, that sense of urgency may have passed. And that would be to, to think that we're not in a dangerous place or that we're in a less dangerous place based on the conclusions of the report would be a mistake. Jacob. If I could just add, I think that one thing to remember is that it's really important that the committee was composed of nine really different members from vastly disparate ideological backgrounds who really want to come together to create a joint narrative to tell the American people how to defend our democracy and how best to fortify um, our freedoms from a very specific threat. And obviously, the report did that extremely well. The entire work of the committee, which we're all really proud to have been a part of, did that surpassingly well in a way that we've never seen before in American history. And I think when you're looking through it uh, in that lens, working under an intense time pressure to create consensus around these issues that are really complex, 
there was a lot left on the cutting room floor from all different parts of the investigation. So there are parts of so-called gold team depositions that were not used, even though they're really relevant to the, the sort of broader threat that Trump and his allies posed to in trying to subvert democracy. There is a lot of um, material about our extremism investigation that, that didn't fit into this narrative that, you know, all nine members could agree on to, to make public in an unprecedented way. Um, and the same thing goes for things about law enforcement failures and, and fundraising and social media investigations as well. So one thing that I would urge you to remember is that there are a lot of pieces of the social media investigation that are embedded into our report um, and into the underlying documents that have been released so far um, as this gov.info treasure trove keeps getting populated. And so while, of course, I think it would have been nice to see uh, large portions of those documents from all of the different parts of the investigation become released, we needed to anchor that in a, a cohesive narrative that all the members could agree on. And so now it's up to us to keep parsing through what was released um, and lift that up to the American public as well. There is a lot of material, of course, uh, the things that you're, you're referencing, depositions from social media executives, some documents that were produced by the companies. You know, there's a, a lot of material, of course, as you say, uh, sprinkled into the depositions of, of the extremists uh, and others that you interviewed. And I mean, I suppose it's, it's worth pointing out that a vast amount of the evidence that is referenced in the report for the actions of individuals and groups, of course, is drawn from an analysis of social media and from content that was posted on social media sites. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about maybe just some big picture uh, items. The Rolling Stone report on your uh, investigation uh, included this sort of, I guess, summary note that the, the sort of sheer scale of Republican post-election rage had paralyzed decision makers, particularly at Twitter and Facebook, who Rolling Stone says you concluded feared political reprisals if they took strong action. That is something that comes through uh, really in especially the Twitter depositions, um, but also from Facebook as well. Can you speak to that dynamic a little bit? What was going on perhaps inside these two major platforms? We'll start there. Sure, Justin. I'm, um, I'm very familiar with the line that you quoted from the Rolling Stone report. And I think you know there are two stories that really float to the top of my mind to illustrate the dynamic that you just called out, you know, one comes from the transcript with uh, Brian Fishman, who was the head of dangerous organizations policy at Facebook at the time of the January 6th attack. Dangerous organizations policy is an area that handles, um, you know, I think was initially set up to handle terrorist groups, formal terrorist groups like ISIS, but had to metastasize over time into other areas with things like more amorphous networks, things that don't necessarily have a a structured leadership or a def well-defined membership or anything that, like that. Um, and so he was responsible for sort of quite a lot of activity, looking for things that could really turn into to offline real world harm. And what he told us was, first off, that he advocated for a stronger response to the, the spread of the Stop the Steal campaign across Facebook. There was analysis at the time that a lot of militant groups were very active in those groups. Um, a report that was leaked by Francis Hogan after the attack that looked at the role Stop the Steal, Steal played on Facebook found that a very, very small percent of users in those groups were responsible for most of the growth. The groups primarily grew by invitation, um, not by algorithm. And just 0.3% of users in those groups were responsible for 30% of the invitations. So there was 
there was a good amount of organic growth, but it was something he told us was that movements have organizers and Stop the Steal was really organized on Facebook. And so he he said, you know, this is concerning. I'm concerned that this movement, you know, there's a lot of violent activity, um, a lot of violent speech in these groups. And I'm worried about this. But he also told us if Facebook had had acted, you know, if they had, say, passed a policy against delegitimizing the 2020 election, um, they passed a policy against election denial. Almost all of conservative media at the time was complicit in spreading these these lies. And so Facebook would have, have had to take action, not just against Stop the Steal groups, but, you know, conservative talking heads, major conservative news sites, major social media influencers, political figures, um, when fully half of the political spectrum is committed and willing to throw their weight behind a big lie like Trump's, it makes it very difficult and, and really very easy for social media executives to give in to the prevailing incentive to find a way not to act. Um, it makes it difficult for them to act and much easier for them to, to find excuses not to. At Twitter, um, you saw in the run-up to the election, and this is really well-documented in the transcript with the first Twitter witness we spoke to who was quoted at, the, at one of the hearings, they did a lot of work after the first after the first presidential debate when President Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by and, and refused to, to disavow the potential political violence by his supporters on a policy about coded incitement to violence, right? Like implicit calls for violence, um, phrases that indicate violence would be acceptable or might be imminent, but don't quite cross the line into to an active threat with an identifiable time, place, and target, right? And this policy was really controversial within Twitter, and they, they did a lot of research. They dug up hundreds of tweets that they said showed that, first off, this problem was pervasive, but also that it could be defined and responded to, and they wrote a draft policy, which we were able to see. But when they took it to leadership, leadership sort of cherry-picked out from the data. Well, these phrases may be, one, one in particular, locked and loaded, which was kind of sort of came into prominence after the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting and said, well, these phrases, what if they, what if they referred to, to self-defense in the home? We wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to, to remove that speech. Um, and so the policy was struck down, but locked and loaded, of course, was really one of several phrases they looked at. It was, it only was responsible for us, a relatively small number of the tweets that they provided in their analysis. And of those, uh, I would argue, having seen the list of all the tweets, the number that, that, could, be allu- that were, could be alluding to self-defense was also limited. It's not clear in every case that this was a self-defense claim. And so you can see in, in some of these stories and in some of these documents and, and, and chat transcripts and other things, executives trying to find a way not to take strong action because they're so worried that if they do the weight of this anger over the election and the sort of longstanding critiques of, of anti-conservative censorship by the companies will, will come falling down on their heads. And it, it takes something actually like January 6th to to force them to take more dramatic action, at which point, of course, it's already too late. I want to come back to the backlash because we're still living in the backlash uh, to some extent, and we'll maybe get into that uh, towards the end. But I want to kind of maybe try to get you to comment slightly on this dynamic that you're talking about. I mean, it seems like when you read these depositions, uh, certainly both from uh, Brian Fishman, who you who you uh, identified at Facebook, and then also uh, Annika uh, Collier-Navaroli at Twitter, um, there's this sort of tension between what appears to be the policy to deal with content, of course, at the individual level or as a content instance, right? As d- different utterances of individuals, um, whether those are violative of policies or not. And then looking at 
the harm of content collectively, right? So network behavior, collective behavior, what Facebook ultimately or one team task force inside Facebook referred to as adversarial harmful movement. Brian Fishman describes violence inducing conspiracy networks. So this tension between kind of thinking about social media posts as individual utterances uh, versus kind of collective cascading behaviors that may have real world impacts. That seems to really come through. Did you all kind of grapple with that uh, or come to any conclusions about that tension? Dean? We talked about that a lot because you can see over time, especially at Facebook, but I'm sure other companies were also thinking about this, them struggle to adapt to um, uh, what I think Megan and Alex have called a post-organizational extremist landscape. A lot of these policies, like I said, come out of the fight against ISIS and other terrorist groups. But when you, you start to get into more amorphous networks of conspiracy theories that still encourage and lead to offline violence, those types of policies are not well suited to tackling that, right? You, no, one, no one pays membership dues to QAnon. Uh, and, and some of these policies were used um, eventually to ban QAnon groups from Facebook. And they, they continue to evolve and have lived under different names at different times. But they really reflect an attempt to get their hands around that problem. And one way in which they were explained to me which I think the thinking changed after January 6th was, how do you respond to a network that isn't necessary, where its members aren't necessarily engaging in policy violations themselves, but the activity that they are organizing, the groups they set up, the communities they create, the conversations they encourage, lead to a statistically measurable increase in policy violations, right? Maybe I'm the moderator of a series of groups in which, you know, I'm not engaged in hate speech. And when I see it, I take it down. But the level of hate speech in those groups is 50% higher than other parts of Facebook. How do you you deal with a problem like that? And there wasn't a policy lever, I think, in place before January 6th, or at least not a well-defined one that they were ready to grab that that would allow them to do so. And I, I think they have actually improved their thinking on this since then. But of course, just because a policy lever has been carved out and exists doesn't mean that the political will to use it will will be there next time. And that I think remains a major weakness. And when we get into kind of recommendations, that's why I think there's an urgent need for more transparency so that the decisions of, of tech executives can be more accountable to the public good. But I'd, I'd love to hear from some of my colleagues about how they see this policy issue, because it's a really important one. Jacob. I was just going to add a very brief point on... Um... Twitter's uh, coded incitement to violence policy and its relationship to President Trump in this context. And something that came across very clearly and very alarmingly in these depositions is that with both of our Twitter whistleblowers, what Twitter was seeing was violent responses to President Trump's posts. That includes his December 19th call to come to Washington and also, importantly, posts he made after the attack had concluded that ultimately led to his suspension from Twitter. And so while some of those tweets in and of themselves, and this fact has been twisted by the Twitter files uh, and Elon Musk, while some of those tweets themselves might not have been immediately violative, once you look at the context in which they're marinating and the responses they're soliciting from users um, across the country, uh, then you see that there's a real problem with the potential for harm in the network. And uh, one issue that we saw over and over again throughout multiple platforms is that, big and small, is that 
they just simply weren't prepared to grapple with the idea of an American president using social media to provoke this kind of violent response. And so when you're thinking about an American president, obviously, Justin, what you were pointing out about individual posts being analyzed in their own terms, that's that's really important when you're talking about the most important political figure in American public life. And these companies, I think, had a really difficult time shifting the paradigm to thinking about the president as a potential inspiration for domestic violent extremism, as opposed to simply a a political figure who should be afforded the most protection in terms of his ability to use any kind of public microphone to whatever end he or she would want. And so that comes across really strongly and really alarmingly in the uh, Twitter depositions, because there was a belated realization by Twitter that the president's account needs to be viewed as a potential nexus for violence. Alex. The the thing I wanted to add to is that the reason why the social media co- uh, companies had such a hard time dealing with these kinds of thing, things is because historically trust and safety teams were set up in such a way to deal with basically two different types of like harmful behavior, basically people using racial slurs and then people flying the ISIS flag. Like that's, that's about it. And the mechanisms by which those trust and safety teams did that are like traditional trust and safety has a queue of content that comes in and a set of often contracted lower paid content moderators who review each piece of content individually outside of context and makes a decision, yes or no, should we take this down or should we elevate it to additional review? That's, that's basically it. And that's how trust and safety teams and that's how social media teams did content moderation for years. Uh, it's literally just until the last few years in which we see the basically exclusively the big companies, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Microsoft, et cetera, starting to implement more nuanced, more sophisticated detection and, and mitigation schemes. 2020 was the first time that Facebook actually publicized doing network takedowns of uh, sort of like harmful content. You know, the, one of the first ones of the like violence inducing conspiracy network or whatever they call it was the Boogaloo network in the summer of 2020. And then the next one, the second one was QAnon in, in uh, September, 2020, I think. It's still very rare that we see a company actually undertaking that sort of like actor-based network-based approach to content moderation. Uh, it's become more more of a, a an emphasis after January 6th, but especially beforehand, the, the paradigms were still so overemphasized on this sort of like cue to content moderator, content-based approach. And that means that these, these companies, both due to political reasons and also due to just the, mecha- the mechanics of their, of their teams, of the way they do content moderation, are incredibly inelastic. They have a really hard time being flexible and responding to um, like very, very new uh, manifestations of extremism, conspiracy theories, and violence. Megan? You may have noticed that all three of my colleagues have been talking about content moderation, right? And I think the key focus of our investigation, or at least the key findings of our investigation revolved around content moderation. And I think that that may be at odds with what the public is focused on or what policymakers are focused on. I know Alex and I got so many questions from higher ups in the committee, um, members included, about algorithms. What's the role of algorithms? Do algorithms radicalize people? Just kind of this focus on that. And I think our investigation yielded what a lot of researchers already knew, but this is just kind of further evidence that is that content moderation should be the focus as far as policymaking, because algorithms, their their role, they for sure they play a role that's undeniable in terms of leading people to problematic content, but that wouldn't be an issue if the problematic content wasn't there to begin with. And I think it's easy to 
assign blame to an algorithm because it's kind of that there's obviously a lack of transparency from the platforms about the algorithms that they use on their respective platforms and the you know the roles that algorithms have in leading folks to certain content and dictating their user journey on a given platform. But I think we really should be zeroing in on content moderation rather than kind of this elusive boogeyman that's hard to define because algorithms being bad is very black and white thinking. It's very easy to just assign blame to this hard to understand thing. Whereas obviously, as we've talked about a lot today already, is content moderation is really hard. It's it's hard to kind of define what is extremism, what is hate speech, what is uh, a dog whistle, what's coded language, and, and staying up to date as that as extremist language and extremist talking points and the narratives that they use evolve very quickly. And, and for trust and safety teams to stay up to date on that and for policymakers to hold platforms to account objectively is going to be more difficult when it comes to something like content moderation that's a lot more subjective. You know, one of the things that comes through in Annika Collier-Navaroli's testimony is this idea of judging uh, the intent of a piece of content based on the reactions to it, um, as opposed to, you know, simply the text that's in that particular utterance. And in Brian Fishman's, you know, of course, you've already mentioned this, this sort of distinction between actor-based policies and content-based policies. Um, so, Clearly, we're kind of at a tipping point on that in terms of the way that, that people perhaps are, are thinking about it. I want to ask another kind of big picture question, something that's addressed in both the Twitter and the Facebook depositions in particular, which is whether had anything been done differently in these companies prior to January 6th, would anything have been different on the ground at the Capitol? Can we tell that? Uh, you know, um, that seems to kind of really get to it, right? Um, had these companies performed better, had they followed their own policies, had they perhaps stricken QAnon uh, as a network from their sites prior, et cetera, would it have mattered on January 6th? Jacob? I think it really would have. One thing that we saw in our extremism depositions, depositions of Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and, and everyday rioters who came to the Capitol is how affected they were by what was going on on social media. A lot of them didn't actually see uh, the president's initial tweet, but they saw people reposting the tweet. And um, that's just one example. So the spread of this sort of uh, incendiary rhetoric aimed at the heart of our constitutional process happened on social media. And Alex and Megan can speak to that much better than, than I could. But one thing that we saw uh, in the depositions of the Twitter whistleblowers in particular is that there was a failure to follow basic procedures for other high-risk events across the world where there was a risk for political violence. Uh, and I think it was our second Twitter whistleblower who is remaining anonymous. And they were talking about how uh, it would be typical for an event in another country where there was a contested transfer of power to have a special team in place to triage any violence that occurred on the ground. And there was a resistance to setting that up in advance of January 6th. And, and both Twitter employees we spoke to talked about how instead of having a specialized team, there was basically a skeleton crew that was deleting tweets as if you and I were deleting tweets, just, just searching through Twitter as if they were normal users. And that's pretty unacceptable from a perspective of uh, a country that, that was seeing these events unfold in real time and were worried about its impact on our electoral system. So, you know, Brian Fishman talked about in his deposition how Stop the Steal didn't necessarily meet the threshold of some of the coordinated harmful networks uh, like QAnon did. And, and while it's true, they weren't endorsing violence as openly as QAnon, 
Facebook didn't have a, an election delegitimization policy and they didn't want to put that in place. And that's Facebook's choice. Uh, it goes back to what we've been talking about, about the center of political gravity shifting more towards um, anti-democratic extremes. So you have to accommodate that on major social media networks. But if Twitter and Facebook had, uh, I think you could also group in YouTube and, and, and Reddit, which is mentioned in the report, um, you can talk about a lot of these policies and these platforms refusing to see what was in front of them. And um, then you fast forward to Twitter employees kind of deleting tweets about breaching the Capitol and tweets with the hashtag execute Mike Pence in real time. And, and we know that was affected, that would that affected the crowd. And it's not just President Trump's tweets that were affecting the crowd. It was, it was, it was everyone. Just bouncing off of that, I think, you know, to, to bring it back to Trump a little bit before we talk about kind of the the spread of, of that, the nature of that sentiment, Trump is really good at demonizing his enemies and convincing his followers that they're facing the end of America as they know it, the end of their lifestyles as they, as they know it. And Alex mentioned that bloodthirsty sentiment that was all over social media. And I think that's ultimately it. Trump was able to spread his views to, or spread his, yeah, his, his beliefs, this, this notion that the world is going to come to an end. America is going to come to an end. If Democrats, if there is a peaceful transition of power and and Joe Biden assumes the presidency and he spread that to millions of people, both, you know, via legacy media um, and new media like social media, just by being himself and talking a lot and tweeting a lot. And the social media platforms let that happen. They let that spread. So by the time January 6th came to pass, users were being absolutely bombarded with narratives surrounding this allegedly stolen election, the notion that there's an imminent civil war, an imminent revolution, um, and reminders that President Trump had summoned them to the Capitol with his December 19th tweet. And that was, I mean, Alex and I saw that across every platform that we looked at. It wasn't just ones with content moderation policies that weren't good enough or with no content moderation policies, like some of the all tech and, and fringe platforms, it was across the board. So whatever platform you were on, if you were in those circles, even a little bit, you were seeing this content again and again and again. And I think Alex can, can build on that a bit as well. So one of the things that I often emphasize should be the goal of content moderation, it sometimes isn't, but should be, in my opinion, especially at the mainstream side, is to basically what I, what I call like reduce the radicalization surface, reduce the mobilization surface. So, you know, decrease the sheer number of people who could potentially be exposed to content that could radicalize and mobilize people to violence. And I think one of the things that we saw is that essentially none of the none of the big social media companies and certainly not any of the alternative uh, social platforms had any sort of mechanism in place to try to do that in the particular manifestation um, that was occurring during the Stop the Steal movement. And so what we saw, for example, just to pick one specific case, Megan and I did a ton of data analysis and archival work on uh, Donald Trump's December 19th tweet saying, be there, will be wild, calling everyone to DC. That was posted on Twitter. What we then saw is that there were a bunch of like power user influencer types picking up that tweet, picking up be there, will be wild and spinning it and making it more violent, making it increasingly insightful uh, and blasting it, that out to huge audiences. This happened on Facebook, this happened on YouTube, this happened on Infowars, this happened on traditional media, like traditional broadcast channels. It happened on alternative uh, social media platforms. And then from there, all those audiences then picked up those spins, picked up those narratives, you know, presented to them by the influencers and then took it in their own directions and started basically becoming this pressure cooker of like hyper violence of this obsession with getting some revenge on politicians, like bodily doing bodily harm to Democrat politicians 
on January 6th, based ultimately on the Be There Will Be Wild tweet. So like any step along that way, any any point in that chain, there could have been additional action taken. You know, the, the Trump tweet could have been taken down faster. That would have disrupted the influencers from picking it up and spinning it. The influencers could have been disrupted because they were spinning it pretty aggressively and explicitly. Uh, and then the, the big audiences also could have been disrupted better themselves. Any step along that way, and I think you end up with a much, much less... Uh, you know, a less dangerous situation on January 6 itself. Jacob. I think to build on that, there's one counterexample that's really uh, interesting and important to, to look at, and it's in the report. One thing we found in investigating Discord is that there was a, a particular um, forum on Discord, I think it was called Donald's Army, that exploded with content after December 19th. And we um, had a briefing with Discord. Uh, that memo is was released currently in the archives of the committee. And we also had uh, some internal documents from Discord that we've also posted online talking about the evaluation of that forum called Donald's Army. And in the hours after January, after the December 19th tweet, as Alex was talking about, that forum exploded and Discord took action to ban it in the like a few hours later um, because people were talking about traveling to DC. People were talking about DC's gun laws. They were they were making sort of little pods to, to coordinate in different parts of the country. And Discord, which has lots of flaws in dealing with extremist content to say the least, maybe knew it had gotten burned enough that they saw this and saw it was a clear enough sign of things going badly that they, at least for this one forum, decided to take it down and suspend it. And you didn't see that on Twitter because we we actually talked about with um, both of our former Twitter employees that we spoke with, they tried to do something similar at Twitter and they, refu- they were refused by their supervisors about that particular tweet. And so going back to what everyone else has said, we did uncover situations in which social media companies acted and it's an affirmative omission by Twitter and Facebook to, to not do this kind of thing because there are other ways out. So I want to ask about another kind of nexus, I suppose, uh, between social media and law enforcement. Because um, one of the things that has become apparent, you know, in the months since January 6, 2021, is that some of the social media platforms sent specific warnings to the FBI. Parler, for instance, uh, made much of the fact that it had sent specific warnings, even though its former CEO largely pleaded the fifth in in the deposition to you. Um, They made that apparent in uh, an earlier uh, House Oversight Committee uh, request that they had, in fact, you know, sent, I think, as many as as sort of 50 concerning posts to the FBI uh, in the days leading up. We know that Facebook also sent specific warnings to the FBI. And it appears in the deposition of uh, Jody Williams, who owned the domain for the Donald.win, that maybe not specific to January 6th, but that he had personally warned the FBI about dangerous content uh, on his site as well. What's going on here? Um, What did you learn about the extent to which the FBI is paying any attention to these types of warnings or how it was assessing the threat based on social media? Jacob. While we are not best situated to talk about some of the FBI's internal um, evaluation of the threat, what I can say is that it was striking going through our parlor productions to see how this website that bonds itself on freedom of speech and sort of owning the libs was sending messages. One message on January 2nd had a high-ranking parlor employee saying to the FBI, I'm really worried about Wednesday. Um, and that to me leaves with Wednesday being January 6th. And that to me leaves a lot of 
disturbing questions about the FBI's willingness to look at the threat posed by President Trump's followers, for lack of a better term, this anti-democratic far-right movement uh, as something that's coordinated and not not a lone wolf phenomenon. And uh, we saw that again and again, where even when they're getting calls from inside the House, the FBI wasn't willing to see this threat as something more than than a one-off. And obviously, the committee's released a lot of materials about the sort of scarcity of, of urgent threat messages from various federal law enforcement. And uh, it looks even worse when you see someone like Jody Williams is telling the FBI that things are amiss uh, on his site. Megan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also worth noting that a lot of the folks who ended up showing up on January 6th and actually doing violence and, and doing acts of violence, they didn't necessarily post online ahead of time. Some of them did and said things like, I'll be there, Trump called me there, et cetera. But a lot of them weren't making explicit threats. You know, they'd say things like there's going to be civil war, et cetera. But a lot of the folks who were posting online in the lead up to January 6th, it's hard to differentiate between shit posting and actual threats. And I think that's obviously something that law enforcement has always struggled with. And I think increasingly has struggled with in terms of really valuing the right-wing extremist threat to the degree it should. And, and moving on from the kind of lone actor bias that Jacob mentioned, where um, they don't see the network, right? They they see these lone, the so-called lone wolves, which obviously we can, Alex can pop off on that. Um, he has a lot of strong feelings, but I think that's ultimately it is the differentiating between the shit posting and legitimate threats is difficult. But at the same time, I mean, again, that was obviously a different team's investigation in terms of the federal failures and, and law enforcement failures um, and, and lack of or in a, um, unwillingness or inability to see the threat for what it was. But in terms of the sheer volume of posts that our team identified and unearthed, I think it was it's impossible for people to say that they didn't know what was coming. I think there were plenty of analysts, especially folks like Alex and I, who before January 6th were doing this kind of work, monitoring far-right extremist activity online, and also just monitoring mainstream right-wing actors and what they were saying. And, and folks were engaging in stochastic terrorism, and even on Fox News. And Alex and I made a case for that in, in our memos for you know the committee. And so I think that's, that's ultimately is, is the threat was there plenty of people who were paying attention to these right-wing spaces knew that there was going to be violence that day just because the sheer volume of posts and the bloodthirstiness and this convergence around a shared cause. And that shared cause was Donald Trump and preventing the peaceful transition of power. So I'm not really sure what an excuse could be for not seeing the threat for what it was. Of course, Christopher Ray had testified, you know, that that was one of the problems, right? Separating the wheat from the chaff, being able to pick out the signal from the vast amount of noise on social media. But I'm, I'm talking about something much more specific, which is specific warnings from employees at these platforms. You know, <laughs> this is violent content. There, there is violence. There are specific threats being planned, um, which for some reason appears not to have been addressed. I guess I'd just say, Justin, that something that struck me during the investigation is how much effort and how many resources are dedicated to sort of intelligence activity um, within these companies. I mean, they, especially the larger platforms have internal teams that look for not just extremist activity on their site, not doing content moderation, but going off platform and trying to figure out, well, are our bad actors organizing in ways we need to be aware of? They hire consultants to do this. They get bulletins from law enforcement and they communicate back to law enforcement. And so there was this very routine, I think, 
monitoring happening, not just of, well, are we seeing a lot of violent posts or violent tweets, but in chat rooms, um, on other on other services, are are we seeing an uptick in activity? Are we seeing mobilization and organization? Are are protests around the country getting more or less violent? And that that activity continued after the election and into the sixth. And so, it, in a way, in a way that I think really mirrored what law enforcement also is doing. And there's a sort of mere parallel failure, I think, to 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 somehow take all that intelligence and monitoring and then make good decisions to be prepared for for the worst case scenario, which is, of course, what what came to happen. And I guess I just wrap up by saying it, it was really amazing to me when Elon Musk released all of these communications from inside Twitter and, and journalists ran with them and sort of under the label of the Twitter files uh, to see these headlines, these breathless headlines, like social media companies communicated with law enforcement agencies in advance of January 6th. Well, of course they do. They've been looking for terrorist content for years. These communication channels were set up, some of them after the 2016 election and Russian interference, right? It's it's routine. It's very normal for them to have been communicating about that and in a way um, healthy because the internet is a fragmented space in which if you only look at one platform, you're never going to see the full picture of, of these kinds of threats. Um, you have to be looking across a, a range of spaces, including offline, to know what's really happening in society and where the threats are. Jacob. One other thing that occurs to me is how many of the platforms talk to us about their response to the election and documents we received, briefings we received, um, depositions we conducted focused on their successful, largely successful response to the election and how attentive law enforcement was leading up to election day in November, um, sometimes because of the 2016 uh, Russian interference campaign. And they, that was hanging over all the social media companies' heads. And that's clear from uh, certainly Brian Fishman's transcript, as well as uh, some of the conversations we have with Twitter. But once the election was over and there was not a lot of uh, violence on election day, I think there was this drift towards normalcy, this desire to see the moment of crisis as over. And so we could talk more about Facebook's decisions to disband a lot of these policies that were uh, emergency put in place and Twitter's unwillingness to see the, the crisis as sort of a continuing worsening dynamic. And that goes to a broader conversation that hopefully the committee's report and the committee's work has helped to alleviate. Um, but that conversation is about whether or not we can talk about American democracy in, in terms that we're used to with election day being the, the pivot point, and then we can all go back to work. And so we should not in future election cycles have these crisis communication centers uh, facilitate communication between social media companies and law enforcement. We should not have those on election day and then disband them after the fact that there's a continuing campaign to delegitimize the election. That's something that needs to be in place until inauguration day. And that's not at all what we were seeing from these social media companies and certainly not what we were seeing from law enforcement. Uh, and that should change. We could perhaps all agree that maybe these processes need to be more transparent. Um, we need to understand these relationships between law enforcement and the social media platforms better. Definitely. And I think we need to understand what the criteria are for uh, coordinated conversations and when a one-off is justified. Uh, because in my mind, if there's credible allegations about an attack on the Capitol, not only should the FBI be having a more robust response, they should be demanding the full extent of their partnership with these social media companies. And uh, it's not clear to me that that was happening.
ladies like me remind me of the girl I left behind me down on You're listening to the Tech Policy Press podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, make sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. You'll find the links at techpolicy.press podcast. While you're on the site, sign up for our weekly newsletter. If you'd like to look at the interview transcripts and other supporting documents and materials from the committee's final report, visit the January 6th Clearinghouse at Just Security's website. There are hundreds of other documents there related to the insurrection from other sources as well, including research and reporting on the role of social media. Now, let's get back to the discussion. I want to just ask you a few maybe slightly inside baseball questions about the extent to which these companies cooperated uh, with your investigation. I mean, clearly there were subpoenas that were sent uh, almost a year ago, and there is evidence in the depositions that a lot of Documents were produced, materials, policies, including some retrospectives that in particular, it looks like Facebook and Twitter conducted uh, to look at their own essentially performance uh, around the 2020 election and afterwards. How would you characterize uh, perhaps those major platforms? And in particular, I don't want to leave out uh, Google and YouTube for which there doesn't appear to be uh, any documentation of their participation in your investigation. Dean. Since I did handle those three big companies for, I think, the most, for for a particularly high intensity part of the investigation, let's say, before the hearing started, you know, I don't want to get too much into conversations with lawyers, but I'll say generally that their strategies really differed. I mean, we did receive tens of thousands of pages of documents, um, which we had to, had to review and sort and, and catalog. Um, in part just to figure out what was useful and what was not, right? We got a lot of, one company in particular sent us quite a bit of junk mail. You know, I know what email newsletters their executives subscribed to, and and this was not especially useful information, right? And so that we had to sort through and just set aside. That's one tactic, right? To flood us with information, to slow down the investigation. Um, But some of the material was really useful. I mean, some companies did send documents that were, that were, sensitive, internal, detailed, um, sometimes so detailed and so inside baseball that we, we needed more expertise to sort of navigate them. And the, their, their full significance only became clear a month later when you'd read so many other documents that you were starting to be able to put together the pieces from these various email chains and, and memoranda. Some companies took a, a pretty stonewalling approach. Um, you know, they, they argued that congressional inquiries into their content moderation decisions uh, were a violation of their sort of First Amendment right to make those decisions unimpeded from government intimidation. Um, You know, there were court cases that indicate really that the January 6th committee had a uniquely weighty interest in understanding those decisions. And and I'm not sure really that that would, that those companies' stance would pass constitutional muster, but it was their stance. Um, Then other companies were, were compliant be less forthcoming. We didn't get as much detail or data from them. And it's not always clear that they preserved the documents or data that would have been responded to our questions. And, and so while they were very friendly and willing to make staff available for questioning, um, we, we did have an ongoing dialogue with them. The amount of material that we received was not always satisfying. And so you saw really a range of responses, but among the big companies, you know, it's not as if any of them refused to play ball. They just had, had very different playbooks. Jacob. 
and I think of the dozen and a half social media companies that we we investigated, we had by and large good faith compliance, as Dean said, in, in various ways. And it was really an issue of, yes, there were some constitutional arguments and there were some disagreements about the kinds of documents that we were entitled to and that were worthwhile to us. Uh, but part of that goes to what we've been talking about for the last hour, which is how did these social media companies treat January 6th and, and the election delegitimization campaign by President Trump as a discrete, dangerous phenomenon, as opposed to just a, another run-of-the-mill content moderation hurdle that didn't really deserve special attention. Uh, and, and I think in many cases, we got documents from a lot of these companies dealing with the election, as I was I was just saying. They had less to say about the period between November and, and January. Uh, and that is not a problem of their non-compliance with a subpoena. That's not a problem with our subpoenas themselves. It's really a problem of these broader questions of social media companies' ability to react and our society's ability to react to this authoritarian moment we, we faced and in many ways are still facing. And I will also note that we were able to have conversations with these companies. Uh, I think almost every company we either requested information from or subpoenaed, we, we spoke to in sort of a substantive briefing setting. Uh, and then some of that has shown up in the report. Some of that uh, didn't make it into the, the report. And so it was an impressive acknowledgement that this is an important investigation that requires uh, a response. The depth and, and tenor of the response was obviously always going to vary. One thing I want to ask about as well is the intersection between the investigation into social media and violent extremism. You've talked about uh, the extent to which they seem to overlap. There has been some criticism of the report, notably in Just Security. John Lewis from the GWU a program on extremism uh, sort of found the report to be slightly pulling its punches on the role of extremism in the United States. You know, can you talk about that nexus? Um, do you feel that it was well enough understood or well enough kind of investigated? Uh, and were your teams, the teams focus on those things tied tightly enough together? Jacob? Well, I'll start. I don't want to monopolize, but because I, I know Megan and Alex will have something to say on this too. Um, I was sat on both those teams, really, uh, in terms of the depositions. And it was the same team in, in, in many respects. We worked very closely with the red team on all these depositions, and we made sure that there were questions being asked about social media use and influence um, in all of those depositions. I, I think that, as with a lot of topics in the report, there's not a, a complete treatment of every single issue, and, and that's to be expected. Uh, but again, we have reams of transcript material from these extremists of varying stripes that really paint a compelling picture of how this problem goes far beyond the Oval Office. And while that wasn't the main focus of the report, and there are good reasons for that, uh, it's now up to people like us to make that story available to the public. And Megan and Alex, I know, had a lot of research done on the impact of social media and on trends uh, in, in extremist spaces. Um, but we, I think, did a pretty good job of, of exploring that nexus, uh, deposing folks like Jody Williams and Jim Watkins uh, and, and getting documents from people in and around their circle uh, and, and also more traditional media figures like Charlie Kirk and others. Uh, not all of them were cooperative. Nick Fuentes was not cooperative when we asked some questions about social media, but that's, that's the nature of, of the investigation. Megan, anything to add on this subject? Let's say the committee were going to extend for another year and you had another year to look at this uh, connection between violent extremism and social media. What would you want to look at? That's a great question. I think 
we laid out the case pretty well in, in our work. Um, I mean, I think our team did a really good job in terms of showcasing the ways in which extremist belief systems and just blatant disinformation navigated its way through and, and propagated through a broad media ecosystem, inclusive of both social media and legacy media um, and people who are kind of trusted voices in the mainstream, how they were absolutely parroting propaganda pushed by by bad faith actors. So I, I think that case was made. I think, you know, we have people like Mary McCord, who has written at length about ways to handle paramilitary organizations legislatively and from a law enforcement perspective. And there are, you know, we solicited the purple team. Um, we solicited over 70 pieces of expert witness testimony or expert witness statements um, from a slew of folks, you know, from different disciplines, different sectors, and on a range of topics. I know Jacob led the charge as far as, you know, getting folks, uh, experts to write about Christian nationalism. Um, we had folks on specific platforms and, and those platforms affordances and, and what was happening on those platforms in the lead up to January 6th. We had people writing about conspiracy theories. Actually, CTech did a, a great statement on conspiracy theories and how, you know, the various glue that that brings all these folks together and, and brought them together on January 6th. And I think we have the answers as far as that relationship. This was answered by entities besides the committee as well. Um, obviously, Just Security has done some phenomenal work on it. The Election Integrity Partnership has done amazing work. New America and Arizona State did great work. And it's just a matter of taking those findings and turning it into meaningful legislative recommendations um, that are actionable. If we could spend some more time on legislative recommendations, I I think that would be a good use of our time. Alex. I think there is a, a legitimate uh, conversation to be had there around that around the fact that like Trump, the MAGA movement, and this sort of like, you know, these like extre hardened extremists who consider themselves essentially foot soldiers of the MAGA movement are altogether basically one symptom of a much, much broader problem. Um, that's been sort of said ad nauseum, but it's worth reiterating here. Like social media and the internet has supercharged this, this process of decentralized, amorphous, large-scale radicalization that gave rise to January 6th. And the report, through a lot of legitimate reasons, a lot of um, very appropriate decision-making on the part of the, the members of Congress, focused on that one specific focal point of this much larger this much larger trend. But it's worth saying that like the things that we're seeing today, this ability for something like January 6th to occur, the ability for QAnon to, as this like very, you know, in a vacuum, basically truly off the wall, unhinged conspiracy theory to radicalize literally millions of people throughout the world. Like all of those things are driven by the, the changes that have been wrought on the fabric of social interactions by social media, by the internet. You don't get the same sort of like massive geographically decentralized, you know, mobilization and, and communications lines without social media. You don't get the same ability for these like who would otherwise be like basically niche celebrities being able to consolidate audiences of hundreds of millions of people to blast violent propaganda to without this, without social media and the, and the internet. So all of these things that we see are so in, they're so linked together. They're so interconnected and they're the, the trends in radicalization and violent extremism that we're seeing are basically being magnified by multitudes by significant margins, by the virtue of the mechanics of social media and the internet that we're seeing today. So, you know, the final report from the committee told one piece of the story. I think 
our our roles here, you know, myself and my colleagues it, in the coming months, the coming years is to is to try to help tell the rest of the story, to try to fill in the gaps and say, hey, you know, Trump is obviously an instrumental part of this. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are obviously an instrumental part of this. But if we truly want to start dealing with the root causes of the fragility of our of the American democracy and of Western democracy across the world, we're going to have to start dealing with the fact that social media is causing these fundamental changes in social interaction that are giving rise to the possibility of basically mass scale violent extremist mobilization. Jacob. I think that's a really good point, Alex. One thing that occurred to me while you were speaking was how we always envisioned the work of the Purple Team as the cement that would hold together this broader story of extremism and an authoritarian crisis point. Uh, And I think if you read the report and you read their underlying materials, we did that. And the committee was happy that we we were able to provide that evidence. And it fills in the gaps, as, as you said, Alex, in a story that's about President Trump and backroom conversations and a lot of the subversion campaigns that we saw across the country in state houses and in in the halls of Congress, uh, that story of extremism in social media is sprinkled throughout in a way that heightens the stakes for the American public. But it's obviously only the beginning of the story, not the end. uh, And we should view it as such. It's a starting point for us to expand public education and eventually legislative reforms around these issues. And it's better, I think, to view the report's treatment of extremism in social media as such, looking at it as sort of the the connective tissue of a story that's about Trump and about the the eight-week period between the election and uh, January 6th, and not really trying to view it as something that's first and foremost a social media investigation or an extremism investigation, because that's not what the the immediate task for the committee was. Uh, And so with limited staff and limited time, I think we were able to infuse those narratives and now we got to pull them out. I will say, yeah, I think exactly what Jacob said. I think the the committee did a good job in the report of laying out just the facts, right? And now this is why, uh, like Dean said in the beginning, why we're now coming out and being like, okay, we have just the facts. Let's add some color. Let's add some analysis and let's keep building on this. And I think, yeah, like, like Jacob said, I think the report did, did a good job in, in laying out the evidence exactly as we saw it. And yeah, so we're just hoping to add color to that. I do want to end on recommendations for the future. Um, the report, of course, has its recommendations none of which were specific to social media or, or to the questions about tech more generally. But what are your recommendations? You know, if, uh, if, if now you do, you know, what Jacob mentioned and you, you go on and you advocate for different forms of solutions to the types of problems we've discussed today, where do you think we have to start? I, over the course of my time with the committee staff, started to think about social media's impact on uh, American democracy and on January 6th is, is maybe a series of concentric circles. And, and the middle is the lead up to the 6th itself, right? Things like the December 19th tweet, Trump's be there will be wild tweet, which served as a catalyst that led extremists to target a specific date. Things like the Stop the Steal movement uh, and, and its unchecked spread. That's the middle. And I think there were, there were real failings there that we uncovered. The next ring out I think of is the the response to the election and specific measures like Facebook's break glass measures, which were, you know, very complicated and, and a large and complicated suite really of interventions to do things that are that are more sophisticated than than make individual content moderation decisions, right? Things like using AI to to make a probability judgment about 
whether or not a piece of content is violent incitement and then potentially demote that content in users' news feeds, right? Because Facebook knows there's so much activity on Facebook every day that they can't hire enough people to look at every single piece of content. And they, they're forced to rely on machines to triage some of this work. That I think is a really interesting area to look at for you know, future recommendations because it sits between the really concrete decisions made around January 6th and a broader argument, what I think of as the outermost concentric ring, which is the argument that social media sort of has accelerated uh, content that is poisoning our, our public sphere. Um, it's in that middle ring where really interesting conversations about the role of artificial intelligence in public discourse are happening and where I think there's actually a lot of potential to, to do things like promote healthier conversations and diminish the prevalence of, uh, of violent rhetoric and conspiracy theories and hate speech and all these, these sort of toxic elements that that you could argue raised the temperature of public discourse to a point where something like January 6th could happen. But we don't have any transparency to that space. We, you know, we, don't, we don't have knowledge of the break glass measures in any de detail because Facebook willingly published them online, right? We have them because of leaks and because of investigations. And I, I think two things Congress could do would be one, to pass sort of meaningful transparency laws to give researchers access to data on measures like that and on social media activity. This is not a novel recommendation. There are already bills written that would address this problem in different ways. Europe is charging ahead with the Digital Services Act, which has components um, here at this specific problem, but it's really, really important because it serves as what one expert during the investigation phrased as the factual predicate for empirical policymaking, right? So it's foundational to, to better recommendations in the future. But the other thing I think is, is sort of higher level that Congress could do is lead a public conversation about these things, um, go beyond like, well, I saw this thing on Facebook and it was troubling and it should have come down to, to really help the American public and, the, and lawmakers understand these processes, the ways that social media platforms work, the ways they elevate certain types of content, the way they shape conversations and the ways in which those are both harmful and helpful, right? The Black Lives Matter movement was able to mobilize using social media but so are extremists. How do you preserve healthy social movements and the ability to create change while limiting the organizational potential of those who would, who would really aim to destroy and subvert democratic process? I don't think the public conversation is really in a, a sophisticated enough place to first off build consensus around that and then, and then make concrete recommendations. But Congress could convene maybe some kind of blue level commission uh, to have a good faith conversation about that and, and to really raise the level of understanding so we might begin moving in that direction. Jacob. So two that occurred to me are actually a little bit more in the extremism space than the social media space. So one thing that's, I think, really important to, to grapple with is how do we diffuse the continuing threat of paramilitary violence um, and political violence in, in general? Uh, and one thing that uh, ICAP has been working on and Mary McCord's been working on for several years has been a federal prohibition on private paramilitary activity consistent with the First and Second Amendment. Um, and so I think something like that, a federal statute to deal with illegal activity by militia groups is a really important uh, conversation for Congress to have because too many states and too many local law enforcement entities don't realize they can take action against these groups because there's been a, a lot of propaganda and political will to not act against the Proud Boys when they show up armed to a drag show, uh, or the Oath Keepers when they show up armed to some sort of federal standoff. Uh, and so as we see these um, 
threats evolve and continue to gain strength after January 6th, that's something that Congress needs to work through, um, not only in the sense of a paramilitary statute, but also giving direction to federal law enforcement and local law enforcement, um, perhaps by thinking about conditioning aid to local law enforcement on the premise that there needs to be uh, sufficient anti-extremism training or insider threat trainings. Um, There was a lot of provisions within the uh, recently passed uh, funding bill that stripped out requirements that would have made it uh, more important for federal law enforcement to look at problems of white supremacy and extremism in their ranks, uh, and also uh, reevaluating their approach to far-right extremism in general. And I think that was a, a grave mistake and something that should be looked at in the future when there is a political opportunity to do so. Alex. Yeah, to add on here, I'm not a federal policy specialist, so I can only talk a little bit to it, but I can talk to some recommendations I have for tech companies. Um, But just to start off with, I do think we're seeing at the law enforcement level in recent months, some uh, additional creativity in the use of existing statutes to apply to domestic terrorism and domestic violent extremism. There was a case in Ohio that that I think is incentivizing right now. That was, I I believe, the first case to use the uh, material support for terrorism statute against domestic extremism. It was a a white supremacist plot against infrastructure. And I think that there's opportunities there to creatively use statutes like that to go after organized networks of individuals who plan attacks on infrastructure, government, etc. So I I definitely want to emphasize that there should be additional lines of education and training and and exploration of those kinds of things. Because I think, you know, like Jacob and Dean were saying, like a lot of times uh, local jurisdictions and even regional jurisdictions just simply don't know how to use the resources that are already available to them. On the tech platform side, though, I do want to offer a couple of recommendations. I think the core one is that there absolutely needs to be massive increase in investment in cross-platform collaboration, cross-company collaboration. The Global Internet Forum on Counterterrorism, GIFCT, does incredible work. They're an awesome start. But I think like their main product is a is a database of hashes of like pretty overt extremist content, like manifestos and live streams and that kind of thing. Amazing product, incredible product, works really well. But I think like that's just that that's the the starting place, right? Like that's the foundation is getting a handle on collaboration across companies for very overt stuff like mass shootings. There needs to be an increase in investment of like how do we handle in a cross-platform way, threats to democracy, threats to uh, civil society, those kinds of things. We're getting there. And there are certainly some some avenues for that. Uh, and there's some foundations doing awesome work. But I think, you know, if there are representatives of tech companies out there listening to this, like pushing on getting more investment in those types of, of collaborative spaces is probably the single best thing you can do. And, and just bouncing off of what Alex said with regard to kind of cross-collaboration and understanding the way that information and and users and influencers move across uh, the information ecosystem. I think we should be collectively, and this goes for the tech sector, this goes for researchers and academics, this goes for practitioners, this goes for policymakers. I think we need to update our frameworks through which we understand both social media and extremism and the way that those intersect. And that should be a networked approach. So obviously we have the platforms which have created an ecosystem full of obviously echo chambers or uh, would, you know however you want to refer to it that have facilitated the rapid spread of disinformation and extremist thought and that also applies to the extremists themselves dean referenced the post organizational extremist landscape earlier and that's exactly how it is situated at this point of course the proud boys oath keepers various militias play a role but the role of those groups has changed and law enforcement 
And those making policy recommendations, those studying these groups should update their frameworks to understand the extremist threat as one that is very much about the network. I know Alex and I have probably said that thousands of times to people that are throughout our town, the committee is that the threat is the network. And that applies to both social media and, and the extremist threat. You know, in many ways, we're beginning to see a backlash against the study of these topics. There are efforts to, you know, impede the research of academics uh, who are looking at these questions. There are, of course, those proponents of the Twitter files uh, who would suggest that a lot of the activities taken by the platforms in advance of the election, uh, perhaps with regard to the suspension of Donald Trump and the decision to do that on multiple platforms, but also you know, with other content moderation decisions that were taken around Hunter Biden's laptop, for instance, prior to the election, uh, that all of those things were sort of inappropriate, that they were uh, meddling with free expression, and that essentially, you know, a lot of perhaps what we're talking about here, they would regard as part of the problem. Um, I don't know, how do you answer that? And we should talk a little bit about the suspension of Donald Trump. And, you know, that's that's an open question, right? I mean, Facebook's about to decide whether to let him back on. Twitter under Elon Musk has essentially restored his account, though he hasn't tweeted. YouTube, we're not sure exactly how they'll make that decision, but apparently could put him back on the platform at some point as well. I'll start with the Trump ban and the Twitter files, because what I think is 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 kind of amazing about that discourse, um, about that argument, the argument to summarize being that Trump was held to a unique standard when Twitter decided to remove him from the platform, that Previous world world leaders had made statements that contributed violence and, and remain on the platform, and that there was this internal discourse at Twitter that revealed that Twitter really didn't have a, a standard or a rule that led directly to his removal. That it was a, a sort of shooting from the hip decision by by top executives that exhibited some form of bias against the former president. And I think you know when I when I saw this come out and I saw the messages they were drawing from. And some of them were involved some of the same people or the same topics that we had also looked at. And I, I sort of thought backward in time from January 6th over the many conversations happening within Twitter during the 2020 election. And it was really amazing to me that they had reached that conclusion because what we saw and what we found was actually a company that was, was really not prepared to take strong action against Trump. That avoided making rules that would have penalized him or his supporters for activity that was objectionable. And then on the six itself, what I saw actually was what you would want to see within a social media company making a decision of that historic gravity, which is debate, you know, dialogue about whether or not Trump had crossed a line, whether or not there needed to be an action taken. And you saw some of the people who talked to the committee who are now on record with their views about the Trump ban saying, you know, I'm not sure this rises to the level of implicit incitement. But what won out within the company was a sense that, well, when you look at the context in which Trump is making his statements, right, which was the immediate aftermath of an attempt to prevent the peaceful transition of power, the, the end of a, of a really good run for peaceful handoffs between presidential administrations in the United States and its democracy, when you looked at that context and then the way in which Trump's statements were being received by audiences, you know, a decision was made that he could no longer be allowed to use that platform to reach massive numbers of people, right? And we have freedom of speech in the United States, but we don't necessarily have freedom of reach, right? You don't have a constitutional right 
to broadcast your views to, to millions of other Americans. And, and so Trump certainly didn't have the right to use Twitter's platform and weaponize it in the way that he had been and that he continued to do after January 6th. And they made, I think, a belated decision to finally take dramatic action. It took an attempted overthrow of the United States government to move them to finally hold him to a standard that they had avoided holding him to for months. And so I think the argument is completely backward that they held him to a too high of a bar. We can argue about where the bar should be, but the fact is that they they really waited until uh, until really it was too late to hold him to the standard he was eventually held to. Um, and I think we have to remember that context when we think about the possibility of him returning to social media now. Jacob. And I think I would build on that and, and put an even finer point on it, that it actually wasn't enough to have inside of the insurrection for Twitter to ban Donald Trump. And it's a really important reason to correct the record on some of the commentary around the Twitter files. The reason why, at least what our investigation uncovered, what our depositions uncovered, is that the reason why Twitter took the final step to ban Donald Trump is because there was a specific coalescing of his supporters around another violent action on January 17th, 2021. And that spread across social media platforms and was in response to his tweets that he would not attend the inauguration. Um, and then there was another tweet that I'm, I'm now forgetting, blissfully forgetting. So those tweets on January 8th were the final straw. Once Twitter employees alerted Twitter supervisors about this very specific threat of far-right violence on January 17th across the country and in Washington, D.C., and we saw other evidence about Oath Keepers planning for a muster after January 6th and other websites like the Donald.Win planning for another violent call to arms on January 17th. And so to say that Twitter took preemptive or, or, or politically biased action against Donald Trump um, ignores the fact that they were more than willing to let him back on the platform as long as he didn't specifically do the one thing they didn't want him to do, which was incite another violent attack against the United States of America. And he still had the ability to do that and promptly did that on January 8th. So um, while I, I think there were some documents that said his his tweets weren't immediately, didn't rise to the level of incitement, our understanding is that while that might have been the first blush impression of Twitter employees, once they saw what was going on beneath those tweets, as Dean said, they saw another very specific ongoing threat to our democracy, um, which, by the way, Twitter employees we spoke to said they saw the same dynamic at work when Trump called for attacks against the FBI uh, or demonized the FBI after their raid of Mar-a-Lago. And we had deposition testimony saying that what they saw on social media, um, including on Twitter, was a similar call and response dynamic between Trump and his top acolytes and then run-of-the-mill everyday Americans trying to endorse political violence. You saw that again uh, after the attack on Paul Pelosi and Trump's refusal to condemn outright this act of political violence. So that dynamic continues. And so Trump's reentrance onto the social media sphere um, in any mainstream way will likely yield those same results again. And the question that people should be asking if social media companies try to prevent um, him from coming back onto social media or take him off again is not, are they biased against him, but what specific threat of violence um, is he fomenting this time? I totally agree that one of the things that's never considered is the counterfactual, you know, what if Trump had attempted to remission the National Guard troops that were put at the Capitol after January 6th? What if the Oath Keepers had decided to activate you know, that armed quick reaction force that was just across the Potomac. There was some discussion of doing that in the days after January 6th. We'll never know that to some extent. 
And it, it seems very clear to me that these companies ought to be weighing the current threat in their decision to potentially you know, restore his account. So we'll see. Um, this has been a wide ranging discussion. We've talked about a lot. I would absolutely encourage my listeners to visit the trove of materials that you have produced to read these depositions. Uh, I intend to use some of them in my class this semester uh, as a way of kind of getting at some of the most significant issues at the intersection of technology and democratic processes. And I hope that some of the learnings that we've taken from your work will be applied not just here in the United States, uh, but elsewhere around the world, uh, where certainly people have come to me on many occasions in conversations on this podcast and said, you know, we've got to get our head around these issues and we've got to get these American companies to address these issues because our democracies, in fact, are, are perhaps even more fragile. And this autocratic moment that you referred to, you know, perhaps has come more frequently uh, in other nations. So uh, these are issues that are not just of import here. Dean, Megan, Jacob, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to Brian Goodman. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.